Amen. Hey, you guys, go ahead and be seated. I've got a big announcement this week. Um, <laughs> several weeks ago, we all got together on a Monday night. I don't know if you guys, some of you may remember this, some of you may not. Um, but we got together on a Monday night, and we cried out to God. Uh, we, we cried out to God for a few different things, one of which um, was a space. Right? We were asking Him to lead us and guide us to a space. Uh, we were, we've been looking, you know, every, for the past, I don't know, year and a half, really. I've been racking my mind around what God could possibly do, where we would meet, where we would gather, where would be, you know, we want to reach both college students, we want to reach families, and we also want to be in a space that's not going to be overbearing for us financially, and so it, it kind of felt like we were looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, I was looking and looking and looking, Jason was looking and looking, and we, we really had nothing, and we came and we just started praying, and I kid you not, a week later, God heard our prayers, and he answered our prayers, Right? God has his hand on our church. I want you guys to hear that and know that, that we have a God that uh, loves to answer our prayers. Um, he has opened the door for us to move forward with a meeting space at a local charter school called Learning Gate Community School. Um, this is, it's a really neat little school. I mean, it's, it's on about 20, I really have no, I have no clue how, how many acres it is, probably 27 acres, 30 acres, but there's chickens on this place. I mean, how cool is that? right? It's a neat little school. Um, it's about three minutes off of uh, the exit, you know, Bears 275 right there. It's right off that exit. Um, it, it, I'm just really excited about what God's going to do there. Um, God has opened the door, and we're hoping and praying. We're, we're moving towards having our first Sunday there on January 5th. You know, so it's a big day. We've got, we're planning a, a, a kids weekend over MLK weekend. The weekend before our launch on January 26th, we've been praying towards January 26th, probably a year and a half. And the day's coming, right? So God has put a place. He's given us a place. He's given us everything that we need to do. But we've got a lot of work to do to lead up to that point. I mean, uh, let's be honest. New City Church, we really don't know anything. We've got like a laptop to our name. Um, and so... We don't have any chairs, we don't have microphones, we don't have speakers, we don't have a soundboard, we don't have any you know, TVs or screens, we got nothing, right? We don't have a trailer to put this stuff in. So you guys can be praying for uh, me, your, your pastors, your, some of the staff that can be working on some of this stuff, but, but come January, um, be ready to run, right? We've got a lot of work to do, uh, but we got a full January plan to lead up to our launch. We're in the process of making marketing material and videos, inviter cards, we've got this kids weekend that I told you about. Um, this, this Kids Weekend is going to be something that we, want, that, that we want to invite all of our neighborhood kids to. Right? All of our kids, um, the kids in their classes, people in our, in our community, people that have kids. It's going to be a lot of work, uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Right? I'm excited about this, but most importantly, kids will be engaged with the gospel. Right? The kids are going to be engaged with the gospel. And during this week, during this weekend, we're going to try and create spaces and times to connect with some of the parents that bring their kids. And we want to create safe spaces for them, and, and our hope is that the kids, when they come over that weekend, the kids will want to drag their parents back to church over the MLK weekend, I mean, over, back to our launch for the following Sunday. It's going to be an all, all hands on deck. It's going to be a full team effort. So take, take some time, rest over the holidays, rest really well, okay, uh, but, and be ready to run. It's going to be an all-out blitz. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, we are still in the King of the Kingdom sermon series. Uh, that's going to take us to Christmas. Um, with a little bit of an encore in January, so I'm excited about that. Um, it's, been, it's been anchored out of one verse, Matthew 1, 1, it's up on the screen. Here it is, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. We spent two weeks going through the promise of Abraham. Uh, we spent two weeks on the promise to David, 
which today is the second week of the promise to David that we're covering. And the final two weeks will be about the coming king and it's preparing us for the birth of Christ, preparing us for Christmas. And so both uh, David and Abraham, if you're not familiar, these guys came way before Jesus. David, uh, Abraham came a couple thousand years before Jesus. David came, you know, a couple hundred years uh, before. Last week, David, uh, Jason did a lot of the heavy lifting uh, on the promise of of uh, David, the promise of the coming king, the, the, the eternal nature of the promise. But today we're going to focus on the part of the promise that God's going to build a house. Um, not a temporary house, but God's going to build an eternal house. So in short, if you're, if you're, so you're not entirely confused if you missed last week. Uh, David, he was this king in the Bible uh, that God came and spoke to. Right? He made a covenant, he made a promise with David. And as we'll see, uh, that promise, it still remains true for us today. And what we'll see, what we've really seen, what we've seen in every single uh, week in this series is that God makes promises and God keeps his promises, right? Jesus also is the key to all of these promises. So um, something I've been thinking about this past week, you know, it just have you guys ever driven through a beautiful place, but in the dark, like you're going to the beach, or you're going to the mountains, you're going to a national park, uh, and when you're driving in the dark to these places, the only thing you can see is what's right in front of you. You know what I'm talking about? When you can't see anything out, all you can see is the light. That's the only thing it reveals. So you can see the road, and that's about it. And then the next morning, right, when the sun comes out, you can finally see the beauty of the creation around you, right? You can see the beautiful colors of the flowers and the trees. You can see the mountain peaks. You can see the ocean, the glimmering of the ocean. And the night before... You were in that same place. You just couldn't see it. Everything is the same. You just couldn't see it. The only thing that changed was the sun, right? The light came in, and it shed light over the creation. And the same thing, is, things, the same thing happens in the, in the Old Testament, right? Jesus comes onto the scene and illuminates the entire Old Testament and, and brings light to each passage. And we could, things that we couldn't see before become abundantly clear, and they become beautiful, right? And so... And we can see that God answered promises um, after answered promise. And, and, today, and anybody that says the Old Testament is, is pointless for Christians, they just uh, they don't understand their Bible. And so Jesus comes onto the scene. He makes the Old Testament scriptures, he makes them utterly amazing. I mean, faith-building and life-giving. Because we have the Old Testament, you know, because we have, because we have uh, Jesus, the key to the Old Testament, Jesus, it changes everything. Right? The gospel changes everything when we read the Old Testament scripture. So with that said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7 again tonight. Um, we're going to cover a lot of the same scripture that Jason covered last week, but we're going to look at it through a different lens. Okay, We're going to look at it through a different lens. And as I already said, last week we saw that God's promise was eternal, and this week we're going to see the promise that God will build a house. Ultimately, we'll see that the church, the people of God, is God's house, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay, So here's our big idea. It's up on the screen. The church is God's plan A, there is no plan B. I'm really excited about today because uh, a lot of what we'll see is, is personally why I do what I do. Like, this is why I do what I do. Honestly, I think I have the best job in the world. Um, there's, not, honestly, there's, there's nothing else I'd rather do than to pastor New City Church, spending all of my time and effort building God's forever house. But this sermon is not just for pastors. This is for every Christian. This is for every single person who calls themselves a, a Christian. Uh, this sermon should intrigue you. And if you're not a Christian, I think this sermon should also intrigue you because we'll see why we're so passionate about what we do, about why 50 people would move here, over 50 people would move here to plant a new church. So with that said, here's our outline for today. Number one, God will build a house. 
Number two, the house is worth the investment. Two simple points, right? Just two today because uh, those two points, we got some teaching on the front end that we need to wrap our heads around before we get to our two points. And before we get to sec- back into Second Samuel, I want to try to uh, quickly catch you up to speed of a few important things that are leading up to this point. Some of the context are surrounding this passage. So just like we've done in every sermon the past few weeks, we're covering a lot of ground. Okay, uh, honestly, we're going to cover a few thousand years of history. So just kind of buckle up. Um, we're gonna we're gonna need to take about ten minutes, and just so I want you guys to pay close attention for about ten minutes. I want you to look to your neighbor and say, uh, "Buckle up and pay attention." Okay, buckle up and pay attention. All right. Here we go, all right? Several thousands of years ago, uh, God made a promise to Abraham, which we covered, like I said, a few weeks ago. And in that promise, God promised that he would bless the descendants of Abraham. So fast forward a couple hundred years to Abraham's great, great, 14 times over grandson, and we get to David, right? David is a descendant of Abraham, and David was a famous king in the Bible. He wasn't like one of those lazy kings that just kind of sit around and doesn't do anything, Uh, he was a warrior king. Right? He, this guy would go into battles, and he, would, uh, he, would, he was a fierce man. He was killing bears and giants, and he was defeating entire armies. And Jesus came from the line of David 14 generations later. And in our passage today, God spoke to David. Okay? And he made a promise to David. And today, we know that God keeps these promises and has kept this promise. This passage is one of the more famous passages in the Bible. In fact, this is uh, the longest recording of God speaking to someone since the time of Moses in the Exodus. So God went along, I mean, so if you look back at everything that he did, he, he spent more time in this one passage speaking to David than he did since the time of Moses. So when, we, when God speaks, we have to stop because we know that this is important. Okay, we have to stop and think about it. An important detail to know up to this point about God was that God was essentially being, being carried around on what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, leading up to our passage, he was being carried on the Ark of the Covenant, and it was believed that this was God's dwelling place, and it was essentially a large, fancy box kind of put on poles that he was carried around by God's people. And they could move the Ark of the Covenant from place to place, and they would set it in a tent. Okay? And if this happened today, I like to think of it if it were like an RV. You know, God was in an RV kind of going around from place to place, and they would pop up a family tent, and that's kind of what they did. You know? um, and King David, he didn't really like that too much. Okay? David didn't want to be, uh, didn't want God to be in something like an RV in a tent. He wanted God to be in a, in a nice large house. So that brings us to our passage today. You know, Jason, like I said, read this passage last week. I'm not going to read the entire thing again, but I'm going to walk through 2 Samuel uh, 7, but highlighting a, a few specifics about God building a house. So follow along with me in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David was in a really nice house, and God was in a tent. Okay? David wanted to build God a nice house, and the prophet Nathan, he just said, Okay, go for it. Um, and just a fun little fact, in case you're wondering, uh, I, I looked it up in Wikipedia. It said who, they, uh, Nathan was David's homie on Wikipedia. They went and changed it later. So uh, we, we did a little fact check. But it was there, I promise. Uh, so there's that. But look down in verse 4. It says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I command to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God's like, you know, all this time that I've been with you, I have never had a house, and I've never even asked for a house, and why are you going to build me one now, right? So get this, uh, God doesn't need David to build him a house, because remember, God created the world, right? He doesn't need David to build him a house. So this feels a little bit, I think, like a four-year-old telling Leonardo da Vinci that he wants to make him a painting, right? It's, or just think about a three-year-old saying, hey mom, I want to make dinner for our family tonight. It's like, uh, nice gesture, but I think Leonardo da Vinci's painting is going to be a little bit better uh, than anything we can think of. So he can, do, he can do it much better himself. So God's like, thanks, but no thanks. Okay? You don't need to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to send someone after you, and he is going to build a house. Here's a little secret that David didn't know, um, that we now know. Um, that man who would come after David to build God's house, his name is Jesus. Okay? You see what I mean? Jesus is the key to almost every door in the New Testament. Look what God says to David, starting in the middle of verse 11. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, David had no clue who he was talking about, but again, we now know that this is Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, he's speaking of Jesus, the Son of God. And he keeps going. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. See, God is foreshadowing there that Jesus taking our sins at the cross. And let's keep going down to verse 15. He says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with, with the vision Nathan spoke to David. So God is telling David here that he's going to make his throne great. That David's kingdom will be, as we saw last week, that David's kingdom is going to be forever. So this promise that God made to David, it was held on to for hundreds of years. Right? This was held on for, for hundreds of years. This was a really big deal to God's people, and it was a big deal to David. Right? David, as he should have been at this point, David was utterly humbled by this. Let's see what happens next. Look, at, look down at verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. See, David was humbled. He was humbled at this point. And he took, and took this promise that God was going to build him a house. He took it to heart. And this promise leads, to David. This, this leads David to praise God. To call out to God his goodness and his kindness. And look what he says in start, starting in verse 20. I mean, this, this is a longer section than I'm going to read, but the, David at this point, he's fired up. Right? He, is, he is praising the Lord. So let's, let's read what he says. He says, And what more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Then who is like your people Israel and, and the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, because their God became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it, be, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Whew. So listen up. Right? You, you see that God's promise, it led David to praise the Lord. There's a lot that we can, we can say. Right? We just read through a lot. There's a lot that we can say, but when we are reminded of God's promise, that should lead us to praise the Lord. Right? We have a great reason to praise the Lord today. But let's keep going. Let's fast forward. I want to fast forward. Hold on. Fast forward to the New Testament where we see Jesus come in and build God's house. Okay? Jesus comes onto the scene and starts to show how, right? he starts to show how he's going to build God's house. But he doesn't want to build it with cedar wood like David. Right? He wants to build it with stones. He doesn't want to build it with cedar. He wants to build it with stones. Jesus says to one of his disciples, Peter, he says to him, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is speaking of himself. Right, the church is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And that same guy, Peter, later on in one of his letters says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, speaking of those that have trusted in Christ, speaking of Christians, right, he's, being, he's reminded of that encounter that he had with Jesus. And he says about Christians, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Are you, are you getting this, right? Like, God promised David that he would build his own house, that he would send someone to build God's house. And then God sends Jesus. And, make, and makes Jesus, as Peter later says, the cornerstone of the house. God made Jesus the cornerstone of the house. So Jesus is both the builder and the foundation of God's house. This is important, right? The people of God... The church, right, us, the church, the church is not a building or a service, an organization. The church is God's people, so God's people are God's house. It's not a physical house, but it's a spiritual house. You see what I mean? Like, David could try to build the best material house possible. Solomon, David's son, he did come in and, and build an extravagant, extravagant house for God, the temple. It was, it was unbelievable, but it was, it was kind of like a four-year-old piece of art versus a Van Gogh. You see what I mean? Like whatever David, whatever house David could build or whatever house Solomon built, God says, nope, right? 
uh, I've got the man who's going to build my house, and God is the architect of his house. God had a better plan for his house that David could ever dream. Right? God didn't want his house to be made of cedar or wood. God wanted to build his house with living stones. God wanted his house to be people. Right? Throughout the entire New Testament, we see the church as God's house. Every person who calls Jesus Lord is building to, is building and adding to and expanding God's house. God is the architect, and his people are the house. This is why we're so passionate about church planting. Right? The church is God's plan A to build his house. There is no plan B. When we plant a church, we're expanding God's house. We're building God's house. When we invest and plant other churches, we're building God's house. This is so important for us at New City. Right? We are committed to planting churches all over the world because we're committed to building God's house. Like We're committed to this. But I want to fast forward again right now to a time in the future, from the future from now, for a house at the end of God's story. Okay? Look at Revelation 21. We don't, we don't see a material house, but rather we see a majestic city. Right? We see a city uh, filled with unbelievable stones, right? rare stones, gold, jasper, glass, pearls, every jewel or stone possible that you could ever think of is in this city. The streets are pure gold. And there's a lot going on here, but I, I don't want you to get too confused by this. So try to follow me because I think this is really important. This should give us so much confidence, okay? This is what the Bible says in Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. It says, I saw no temple in the city, which was known to be God's material house, right? So for its temple, that material house, is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, which is, that's Jesus, you see, God, God didn't want a material house because he's better than that. He's bigger than that. He doesn't want, he, you know, he's greater than that. And pay attention here. This part is important. Look at verse 24. It says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And look what comes, comes up again in this next verse. It says, They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. Listen, do you remember a few weeks ago from Abraham's promise, the promise for all people all over the world to worship Jesus? Whenever we see this phrase, nations, in the Bible, we should always think people. We should always think different groups of people from all over the world. These nations, God's people from all over the world, are living stones of God's house. Like these are, these are the living stones. You see, David wanted to build God a house, something material, but God didn't want this material house. God didn't envision being kept under the cover of a house. God wanted his glory to be revealed to the entire world, right? God wants to shine his glory among all the peoples of the earth. These peoples, these nations, are God's spiritual house. You see, David wanted to build a material house. Solomon, David's son, built a material house for God. Solomon built God a temple, a great majestic temple. But it was destroyed 500 years later, or 500 years before Jesus came onto the earth. The house that God is currently building with living stones, the church, it cannot be destroyed. Right? It cannot be destroyed. The Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Which brings us to our first point. God will build a house. 
God will build a house. But look, just like we just said, this will not be a house made of wood or cedar. God's house will be far greater than that. God's house is going to be far better than that, far bigger than that. God is not building a material house. God is building a spiritual house. God's house is not being made of regular stones, but living stones. God's house is made up of God's people. And don't miss this. The church is God's house. And as we saw in the book of Revelations, God's house is not made of ordinary stones. Right? God's house is not made of ordinary stones, but extraordinary stones. Pay attention because this is good news for each of us here today who proclaim Jesus as Lord. If Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's house, and there's not a single living stone, not a single person that can be added to God's house without trusting in Jesus, and if the church, the people of God, not the organization, right, but the people are God's house, and if the stones of the house are rare jewels, Right? If the people are rare jewels, extraordinary living stones, as Peter says, they're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, <laughs> then brother and sister, through the gospel, that's your new identity. That's your new identity. We, the people of God, God's church, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have an inherited, we have, the church has inherited an identity of royalty, an identity of chosen, holy, God's possession, set apart. That's a fact. Like, we can live and rejoice in that today. Through the gospel, God takes dirty, scuffed-up rubble and turns his people into precious, extraordinary jewels. All right? Don't miss this part, because this is often where people get it wrong. Yes, that is our new identity. Right? That's our new identity. But, listen, we're not the centerpiece of God's house. We're just the stones. The centerpiece of God's house is Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece. The purpose of the stones in God's house, the purpose of God's people in God's house, is point to the extravagant glory of God. If you, want, if you were to go to a modern-day castle, for example, and you would see royal stones, these stones would be extravagant, but they're the king's stones. Like, like the king owns all of them. How silly would it be if we went up to the king and said, you know, those stones are more important than you, the king. Like, your, your stones that you have there, those are, those are more important than you. Um, you would be escorted, gently or not so gently, out of the castle, right? When outsiders look at the church, when outsiders look at God's people, they should not only say, what an extraordinary people, which, let's be honest, that's often hard to say because we live in a, fall, we live in a fallen world, we have a fallen condition of sin, but rather, we hope that they would say, what a great Savior. Right? What a great king. The, jo- the job of the church is not to elevate the church, but to elevate Jesus Christ as king. There's so much we could say, but, but I want to talk about what this means for us in the room today. Specifically us as New City Church. Get this. We have a promise that God's going to build a house, his church. Right? We have a promise. That doesn't mean we have a promise that God's going to make New City Church great. No, we have a promise that God will build his house. We have a promise that through Jesus Christ, God turns people of rubbish into people of rubies. God will redeem people. God will save people to make extraordinary living stones for his house. But that doesn't mean he will save everyone. And we don't know how. We don't know when or where. But God has declared a promise that in the end, 
Right? In the end, there will be an extraordinary spiritual house filled with people from all over the world, people from Tampa, Florida, the huts of Africa, the villages of India, and the major cities of Europe, all peoples from all over the world. <laughs> That's a promise. We've got that as a promise. And what, we have, and what have we seen in this series? That God makes promises, and God always, God always keeps his promises. There's not a single promise that God has not kept. New City Church, listen, we can, we can labor with so much joy and confidence because as we said from our big idea, we know from God's word that God's people, the church, is God's plan A to reach the world. There is no plan B. We are the church. Right? We're God's plan A. We're God's means. We're God's tool to see people through the gospel go from people of rubbish to rubies of royalty. Brothers and sisters, if this is a promise, if this is 100% absolutely going to happen, then God's house is worth the investment. Right? God's house is worth the investment. You know, we can invest in a lot of things. Um, we can invest in people. We can invest in our family, our marriage, our kids. We can invest in material possessions. We can invest in other sources of income, you know, in the stock market and real estate. You know, we can invest in education, organizations or sports teams. Um, but when we invest our time and our ability and our resources into something, we expect some sort of return. Right? Like when we invest in education, we think we would be smarter by the time we're done. Um, when we invest in other sources of income, right, we, we hope to get some sort of uh, financial return. And one of, my favorite, one of my favorite investment shows to watch, um, Shark Tank. You know, there's four, to five, uh, there's four to five wealthy, high-dollar investors, and they're called the Sharks. And people come in with these brilliant ideas, and sometimes they're not so brilliant, you know? Um, and they make a pitch for people to invest in their business. And sometimes they invest, and oftentimes they don't. Um, and I'm, honestly, I'm not really sure how to think about this. Uh, and I don't know what this says to me as a person. But I personally love it when people come up with really bad ideas. Like, I just, I just love it. Uh, terrible business plans, and the sharks just roast these people. Like, I love it. It's just pure entertainment. You know, Kelly feels bad. Um, I just find it entertaining. And it becomes very clear that these are really bad investments. You know, my favorite uh, bad, awful business pitch was a guy that came in, and he made a, a, a pitch for people to have a Bluetooth headset surgically implanted into their ear. So you could talk on the phone with people through this surgically implanted headset so no one could actually see the Bluetooth headset. You know, in order to charge it, charge it every night, you had to plug your ear into the wall, right, into <laughs> this little headset, right? It just... You know, so he, it, of course, the guy was absolutely laughed off the show, and it was awesome. But what these investors are looking for um, is a hope to get some sort of return. They're looking for an ROI. And I don't know about you, but if I made a pitch to these investors of an investment that had a 100% guaranteed return rate, they would be silly not to invest, right? And here's the point. That's the type of investment that God has made available. That's the type of investment that God has promised to his people. The church has an absolute, certain, 100% guaranteed success rate. That's a guarantee. right? It's a guaranteed ROI, the eternal ROI. God absolutely will build and grow his church. Now, I'm not talking about the organization of New City Church. I'm talking about God building his house. God will build his eternal house made of living stones. And because of this, when we, New City Church, are laboring to build God's house, we can labor in confidence. So, you know, if our focus was to build 
New City Church, that was our primary focus, to build New City Church. Then church planting and, send people away, and sending people away on mission would not make any sense. That wouldn't make any sense. But New City Church is not interesting in making New City Church great. We want to do whatever it takes to make God's house great, right? to make the kingdom of God great. And that means sending money and resources and people all over the world to build God's forever house. Investing in both the local church and the global church is worth the investment. Because when we invest in the church, we are investing in God's promise. And this is true both locally and globally. So we have to ask the question, right, how do we invest in the church? There are a number of ways we can invest in the local church. You know, New City Church, like I've said, we're an expression of the local church. We're certainly taking part in building God's house. But here are a few ways that we can invest in the local church. You know, in January, for example, us, New City Church, we're going to have a membership celebration. We're going to have a membership covenant that we'll give each of you to pray through, for you to consider being a covenant member of New City Church. This is not like a club membership. This is a covenant between you and the elders and the Lord. Right? Through covenant membership, the elders are making a commitment to you to care for you and to pray for you and to teach and to lead and protect. And you are making a commitment to the church, to God's people, saying that we're in this together. Like We're, we're unified in what we're doing, in our, in our unified in vision, in our mission. You know, we're unified to care for each other, to be sacrificial together. When we make a covenant with one another, we are showing our investment, our commitment to the church. We also... We also invest in the church by serving the church, right? by serving one another, encouraging one another. When we, think of, when we think of serving, we often think of an organized role or task, which is in fact serving the church. And we serve in our kids' ministry. Right? When you serve in our kids' ministry, you're investing in the church. When you greet people out front, when you serve in our tech booth in the back, you're investing in the church, you're serving the church. But remember, the church is not an organization or a service, the church is people. So when you help someone in need, you're also investing in the church, right? When you write an encouraging note to someone, when you use your gifts to help build the church, you're investing in the church. When you show up, right? When you make yourself available, you're investing in the church. Just being present with the church body is a huge blessing to, to the church. Let's be honest, okay? You can find uh, better preachers. You can find better teaching. You can find uh, better Bible studies. You can, make, you can make better music with a full band at home by yourself, right? You can do all of that by yourself. What you can't do at home by yourself is encourage a hurting soul, right? You can't speak scripture over them. I absolutely get it, right? Sometimes this is the last thing you want to do is to come in and be with people. Like you're tired from the week, you're peopled out, you don't want to sit through a sermon, you just want to stay home and have me time. Like I get it. But I want to call each of us to fight against that and absolutely reject that. Because if you have in your mind that you don't want to be with the church body, that's a red light. That's an indicator that you absolutely, we absolutely need to be with the church body. Like that's what we need. We need to be an encouragement to each other. We need to build one another up. We're called to invest in the church. Like we're called to invest in God's people. If you don't think you need to be encouraged by the church, well, good for you. You know, uh, others could use some of your encouragement. Like that's, that's just what we're called to, be, to do. Just being present and available with the church body is one of the greatest ways you can invest in the church. When you're present with the church body, you're investing in God's promise to build a church. You're helping to build the church. Building up God's house, you know, it's absolutely worth the investment of your time, talent, and treasure. 
And when we give to the church, when we give financially to the church, we're investing in the church. When we give of our resources to the church, we're investing in God's promise. Right? Giving of our, our, our gifts or our talents, you know, that's often fun. Right? That's exciting. Giving of our time. This, for some, this is hard. For some, that's, that's easier. It's much easier than giving resources. But then, when we think of giving our resources, for most, this is often really hard. And you know why? Because we often find our security and our stability in our money. Money oftentimes equals fun, it equals pleasure, it equals comfort, and when we give, it's, it feels like we're giving up fun and pleasure and stability and comfort. And honestly, I would rather not talk to you about money. Like, uh, it feels like that no-no conversation that we're not supposed to have, you know, but I know from personal experience that if we do not talk about this, I'm robbing God from what He wants to do with our hearts. Because how we steward our money, it's an indicator of where our heart lies. And, and you know what? Jesus also knew this. Because money is one of the most talked about topics in the Bible. In the Bible, just, just, just get this for a second. Hope is mentioned 185 times in the Bible. We love to talk about hope. Faith, 246 times. Love to talk about faith. Love, 733 times. We love to talk about love. And giving, 2,000 285 times. We should love to talk about giving. Right? That's what Jesus calls us to do. If we never talked about giving in money, if we never talked about stewarding the resources that God has given each of us, we would be ignoring the thing that a guy named C.S. Lewis said. He said that ties our heart to this world. And so when we steward our resources well, when we give generously and hilariously, as Paul says, uh, it's often not just for the person receiving the gift, but it's probably more for the person giving the gift. Right? Please hear me on this. God does not need your money. He doesn't. God does not need your money. God wants your heart, and our, and our money is a gauge to our heart. When we invest and give, generally with our resources and our money, we're absolutely investing in God's house. Right? When we give cheerfully and generously to the church, we're investing in the promise of God. People often ask, right, they ask the question, how much should I give? And there's a lot of ways to answer this question, but in short, we should just be giving out of faith. Right? That's the answer. We should be giving out of faith. Every time we give, it should be an act of faith. We're essentially saying, my heart is not tied to this world. Like, my heart is not tied to this world. The Old Testament standard was 10% of your overall income. That's a good starting point to work towards. However, you know, the New Testament never gives a standard. It never gives a standard. In fact, most of the time in the New Testament, when you see people giving, they're, they're giving far more than 10%. It's more about your heart than a number. It's a step of faith. It's more about a step of faith than a number or a percentage. Something else I know is that you can't give what you don't have. You can't give it. For some, it's a major stretch to give 10% of their income. It's really good. But for some, it's not. Giving is never about a number. It's always about our heart. It's always about taking steps of faith. It's about investing cheerfully and generously into God's promise that He will build His church. Now with that said investing and building God's house, it's worth the investment. But like I already said, when we invest locally and globally, this is, why, this is why New City Church is intentionally investing in planting churches all over the world. And we're investing in planting churches internationally among the unreached people, peoples of South Asia. And we're going to invest domestically in, the United, in, the United, in planting churches in the United States. We believe in God's promise that He will build His house. And we help start other churches. We're investing in God's promise. 
Now, this is something that we've talked about doing, but it's time for us to put some skin in the game, right? No matter the size or the season, we're, we're committed to planting churches. We're committed to being more about building God's house and seeking a, to make a New City Church great. So with that said, I'm excited to announce that New City Church is going to partner with Redemption Church that's being planted in Roanoke, Virginia in 2021. Right? Praise God. I'm excited about what God is going to do. Some of you may know Carter and Tamara Mundy. Uh, they're from Greensboro, North Carolina. They're great friends of ours. Um, I've, had, I've had the privilege of getting to know Carter over the past several years. Um, we, we together actually wrestled through church planting. Uh, both of us, you know, we were in a cohort together kind of wrestling through some of this stuff. You know, Kelly's done joint ventures with Tamara. Uh, Carter was one of the elders at Mercy Hill where many of you guys came from. Uh, and they've been a great blessing to us, and we're excited about what God is going to do with Redemption Roanoke. So with that said, I want to, I want you, I want to point you guys to the screen here and take a look at this video from Carter and Tamara. I started thinking about church planting when I was in college, but we didn't really buy into the church planting idea until we moved to North Carolina and started going to the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham. When we plugged in there, we started understanding that not only is the local church God's plan A for changing the world, but really the New Testament method for making disciples was church planting. When Carter started talking about church planting being a possibility for us as a family, I think my first reaction was like, oh, that's, that's really nice, but no thanks, we're not, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and so it's just been really cool to see God change my heart. We've really loved our time at Mercy Hill. It's been life-changing for us, I, I would say. I don't think that we would be where we are now if we hadn't decided to come with the yeah. launch team. That experience that we've had here at Mercy Hill over the last seven years, plus my time in leading at the Pregnancy Care Center here in Greensboro, plus the passion that we have for discipling others and equipping the saints, as Ephesians 4.12 tells us, that all wrapped up into one, I think has really just compelled us to ask the question again, yeah. why shouldn't we go? Right. And so we really want to go do all of that and run up Virginia through Redemption Church. Roanoke itself is a cultural hub because it's the largest city in Western Virginia. And so we feel like there can be a large cultural impact that's made if we plant a church in Roanoke. It's a medical and research hub. There's about 300,000 people in the Roanoke Valley area. Roanoke has been listed as one of the top 100 places to raise a family, but there's still a lot of brokenness there. I mean, Roanoke's divorce rate is double the national average. At any given time, there's 500 students or more that are homeless. So we want to come in and help change that culture. There's about 10,000 college students in Roanoke City and Roanoke County itself. I went to Roanoke College, which is right there, right outside of Roanoke in Salem, Virginia. And I think back on all the things that God was doing in my heart and my life in college, and I think Planning a church in Renate makes me excited to be able to reach the students at Renate College and the other surrounding colleges like yeah. Collins and there's community college there. I think what drew us back to Roanoke was, was really just the need that we saw for the gospel to be there. While there are vibrant churches in Roanoke, Christianity's in decline, churches are in decline, and we just feel like it's a prime time for us to go back and plant a new gospel-centered church that can really join in with some of the other churches there in Roanoke to make an impact for the sake of the kingdom. 
Our mission at Redemption Church is to mobilize leaders to bring a restless culture to the redeeming Savior. We want to see Jesus' followers become culture leaders. I feel like God has really worked in my heart over the past couple of years, just reminding me that it's not about me. The work is up to God and the Holy Spirit, and He's just called us to obey. It's not, should I go? It's, why shouldn't I go? Our great hope for Roanoke is to see nothing less than a gospel-centered revival there. You know, they're, uh, they're doing exactly what we're doing. They're just a year behind us, right? They're, uh, they're just in, in, in a different city. And so by us investing in Redemption Church, we're investing in God's promise that he's going to build a house. And this is God's plan A to reach the world. There's, there's no plan B. And because of that, like I said, it's, we're putting skin in the game. And through the end of December, we have a special above and beyond offering where 100% will go towards missions and church planting. 100% of it. 100% of their funds raised in this offering will go outside of New City Church. It will help to advance the unreached peoples of the world and help plant Redemption Church in Roanoke, Virginia. The first $1,000 is going to go to our partnership in South Asia. And the next $5,000 will go to Redemption Roanoke. And, we can, uh, and everything above and beyond that will be earmarked by taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here's an, We don't know what that, we're going to pray through that, what that's going to look like, but here's one example of how uh, that money could be used. It costs about $5,000 for one person uh, to move their life to South Asia for about six months. Right? The money of $5,000 can go a long way to labor among the unreached peoples of, of, of South Asia. And maybe God could call one, of, one or two of you uh, for you to sacrifice six months to a year to, to labor among the unreached. It would, you know, I would love to make that happen. Right, if we could go above and beyond what God has called us to do, if we're going to be a sending church, if we're gonna, we, need, we need to give and we need to send accordingly, and we, need, we need to send and give in faith. I don't know what you're able to do, but I want to call each of us to pray and, and consider giving. Sacrificial giving. Um, an above and beyond gift, a financial gift that will be an act of faith. You know, we, we can't give what we don't have, Right? But I want to call each of us to pray and consider what could God do with the resources that God has given us. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? God owns all of it. But we must consider how, how will we steward God's resources that he has given us. The mission of God, we say this all the time, the mission of God can only go as far as, far as the generosity of God's people. If you've never given the New City Church, I want to ask you to let this be your first gift. Let this be your first act of faith your step of generosity into the mission of God. Now, for all of us, by us giving generously to our 2020 missions and church planning offering, uh, we're investing in building in God's house. We're, we're investing in, van- in advancing the gospel. When, by doing this, we're investing in God's promise that he's going to build his church. He's going to build his house. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you will build a house. We have a promise that you're going to build an eternal house made of living stones, made of people from all over the world. Father, we, we, we know that our labor is not in vain. Father, we know that we can invest wisely. We have a great reason to rejoice, to praise the Lord with the promise that you have given us of building a house. So Father, we, we ask for wisdom today. We ask that you would lead each of us in this room of how you have called us to, to steward our resources well. Um, that we would give above and beyond what we, what, you have, what we normally give. Father, we, 
uh, we, we pray that you would open our hearts, you would unlock our hearts for generosity so that the gospel can, can, can continue to advance. Father, we're grateful and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.